0: This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 39. This week, retired U.S. Navy Captain Tom Demon Mitchell joins us to discuss a single engine Navy and Air Force attack aircraft that may not be very well known by the general public, but was highly regarded by its pilots for
1: one particular quality. The A 7 was a phenomenal weapons delivery platform. I can tell you stories about things that just you can't believe.
0: And guess what? He does.
2: Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapons systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 39 of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host Jello here with my co-host Sunshine. What's up, dude? Hey, not much. Hello, Jello. How's Florida these days? Florida is good. Well, it's only this one day. I'm here on layover in beautiful Sarasota, Florida, and I'll be right back at it tomorrow and home in a couple days. How about you? You just got back from Alaska.
3: Yep. A little more chilly in Alaska, as you could imagine. Got down to about zero degrees, but I did get the chance to see the northern lights. A lot of fun.
0: Oh, I'll bet. I've never seen that, and I always have heard what makes it happen, but never fully understood it. But eh, we could talk about that some other time. Sounds like a plan. excellent we have an interesting interview today coming up and last time you were present for the interview but not the fill. Mm -hmm. this time you're here for the fill but not the interview but i really enjoyed tom's discussion what did you think you had a chance to listen
3: yeah i'm just i was very impressed with tom sounds like a great american i bet he's a fantastic grandfather and uh just his experience was crazy Oh, yes.
0: Well, we should almost bring him back to talk about the A4, but we've yet to have a repeat guest, so who knows? Maybe we'll spread the love out a little bit more. Excellent. Well, we will get to the interview in just a few minutes, as always. First, we have some announcements, and we want to talk about last week's episode on the S3. And the first is that an astute observer, Sunshine, pointed out that we incorrectly stated that the S3 carries the Mark 48 torpedo, when in fact, it carries the Mark 46.
3: Yeah, great call, man. That was a fantastic call. Yeah, the 48 is obviously way too big. Thank you much for that.
0: Yeah, that is a submarine-launched torpedo, I believe, where the Mark 46 is an air-launched. Absolutely. Cool. All right. And then we received another email, this one from Jeffrey, and he states, I enjoyed listening to your episode on the S-3. You guys mentioned a few times that NASA still flies the S-3. I actually work at NASA's Glenn Research Center in Cleveland, Ohio, where it has been used for earth science missions and engineering studies of in-flight icing since 2005. So I have often seen this lovely aircraft, now painted in NASA colors, parked on the ramp. I've heard they will be retiring the aircraft in 2020 due to the difficulty and cost associated with maintaining it, but he says this is just a rumor I've heard and not official NASA position. But it was interesting to learn a little bit more about the airframe from you and your guest. I thought that you might like to know that this old Navy bird has had a lot of success in its last mission as a research aircraft. That's a pretty cool email.
3: Yeah, very cool, Jeffrey. Thanks for that tidbit. Jello, back in about 2016, I got to see that NASA bird. It flew out to an air show in China Lake. Oh, very good. Pretty cool. I got pretty nostalgic. They actually let me not sit in the seats, but crawl into it. And uh, yeah, it brought back a lot of memories. Oh, I'll bet. And now that one's painted in what, like a NASA white with a light blue trim? Yeah, exactly. Much like you see the uh, T-38s from NASA. Oh,
0: sure. Okay. Okay. That sounds good. And then one last remark on last week's episode. Sunshine, did you stick around for the flyby at the end? It wasn't me and my F-18.
3: It was an S-3. I did. Just brought back more memories.
0: <laughs> well, I was looking for an audio whoop whoop out there somewhere, but I couldn't <laughs> find it on YouTube. So we just went with a screaming flyby at 200 knots or whatever it was. Been screaming indeed,
3: yeah. Maybe <laughs> yawning. Yawning is a better word. <laughs> oh,
0: well, I think everyone's aware that we love the S-3 and the facebook post when we announced the release of that episode really went off with a lot of different comments including our buddy Vern from episode three who said hey they should keep this thing around but as jeffrey points out it's getting more and more expensive to keep some of these old aircraft flying Absolutely. Cool. Well, Sunshine, I want to let you and all our listeners know that Patreon continues to do well. We have new division leads, Matthew Carruthers, and a gentleman from Europe whose name he thought I would have difficulty pronouncing, so he goes by Baltic Dragon, and that sounds pretty intimidating.
3: Wow, yeah. That's a call
0: sign? (laughs) Yep. Yeah, yeah, well, he's involved with the DCS community, so we're Uh glad for his support. And we also have a new Patreon strike lead, Eric Lowry. So thank you to all our patrons, and and head on over to patreon.com, look for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, where you too can gain access to exclusive content and help keep the show going. Well, Sunshine, I think we have time for some
3: listener questions. What do you think? Fantastic. Let's go for it. Do you want me to start off? Yeah, sure. What do you got? Hey, so Jello, the first one's from Yogi Santos. And it's a multiple part question. Okay. The first part here, it says, what mishaps have y'all, as in Y apostrophe AL, giddy up, (laughs) what mishaps have y'all been part of? And how did you mentally and physically recover from both in the moment and afterward? And what type of training do y'all receive to troubleshoot potential issues? Okay. And then finally, do y'all practice emergencies on a regular basis? So do you want to start off, Jello? Sure. Well, it sounds like
0: Yogi must be from Alabama or Georgia. Welcome. He didn't tell us where he's from, but we'll take questions from everybody. And that's a good one, Yogi. I personally was not involved with any mishaps, thankfully. I witnessed one, as we talked about on the S3 episode, and that was somewhat mentally difficult for me to recover from. It was a lot of introspective thinking and reflection with others who were affected by that. and we do. You train quite extensively, Yogi, to deal with emergencies and setbacks, both in the airplane and outside of it, because they want us to always be at our best. We do spend quite a bit of time working on training, whether it is through handwritten emergency quizzes or in the simulator, Sunshine, as you and I have talked about before, Mm -hmm. getting in and practicing those different procedures, or even just ready room discussions. And so, yes, we spend a lot of time dealing with how to handle a malfunction or emergency. But thankfully, I
3: was never really afflicted with anything too serious. Sunshine, what about you? What have you had in your several thousand hours? Yeah, so two mishaps specifically come to mind. One was in the S-3, one was in the F-18. The S-3, we're out in Fallon. We're doing a practice bombing mission with the Mark seventy sixes. the practice bombs. On the way back, we do our own version of a battle damage check where... The wingman will join up on the lead and kind of maneuver around the jet, look to make sure the bombs that should have fallen off did, nothing's kind of hanging or stringing along, and things that shouldn't fall off didn't, if that makes sense. So uh, (laughs) I get a call on the radio from my wingman, and he goes, hey, Sunshine, you're on fire. I was like, dude, not cool, (laughs) like not funny. And then uh, we looked at our engine instruments. Nothing was there. And the wingman basically had to convince me that I was on fire. So, (laughs) so, uh, yeah, believe it or not. So there was a a fuel leak in the... Now, we don't have afterburner, obviously, but we had a a, a very minor example of afterburner in that there was a fuel leak through the uh, stator blades, if you will. So we basically had a trail of fire coming out of the right engine. So sure enough, we landed. And the reason I mentioned the right engine is because to exit the S3, the exit door, we'll call it, is on the right-hand side. So... We uh, secured the engine airborne, came back down, and landed. And then uh, after we taxied clear of the runway, we shut down the jet. And because we couldn't see the fire, we had no idea if we should exit right next to the burning engine. So sure enough, we did exit, took our chances, no engine fire, and we went out. So that turned out to be, I think, a class of Bravo. So it cooked the engine, and there was an investigation, and uh, they found that it was not, I was not at fault, which was nice, just a mechanical malfunction. Right. The, the other one, though, a little more, I'd say, a, a bigger pucker factor, and that was... In the rag, so I was at VFA 106 out in El Centro, armed once again with a bunch of Mark 76s, taking off in the hot high desert, if you will. And my nose gear on the right side, because the nose gear itself has two tires, right? One left, one right. The one on the right, the bearing seized, and it actually exploded, and the shrapnel went down the right engine just after rotation. Ooh. So, yeah, so basically we hit nose wheel lift off. I pick the nose off the deck, and I hear engine right, engine right, and I get a yaw. So sure enough, I'm an afterburner on the left engine and the right engine's just kind of sputtering along. So I was able to get up to 180 knots and I got up to about 360 feet. And those numbers are no kidding ingrained in my mind as I'm leaving the runway and heading out toward a farmer's field. And procedures were basically to, we call ring the doorbell, get rid of the external weight, if you will, in the fuel tanks. But unfortunately I saw a farm house underneath me as I'm uh, thinking about pushing the button. So I decided to keep all the stores with me. I bring up the landing gear And then I kind of jockey between military power afterburner and dumping the fuel to get up to 6,000 feet, eventually bring it back for a trap. And uh, after I crawled out of the jet, I looked through the intake of the right engine and I could see daylight. Oh, jeez. So it really chewed up the engine, but I got to admit, I still love those GE engines. Even though there's no thrust coming out of that thing, it, it kept the hydraulics online, which are very important.
0: Wow, that is crazy. Well, you and your engines, mister. And last <laughs> last time we had a story about the S3 engine, so I hope everyone doesn't think the S3 had problems <laughs> with engine fires, but a couple of cases there. You mentioned, Sunshine, a Class B. Explain that real quick for the listeners, if you would.
3: Yeah, and you know what? I am rusty on the different cost thresholds, but basically it's a severity, which could be either loss of life or aircraft and or cost to repair. So there's there's A, B, and C. And I guess now they actually have a Class D, air-to-ground mishap. That's right. And, and that's uh, basically Class A. Remember, if there's loss of life or loss of aircraft or above a certain threshold, is it is it about $2 million? That I think right? it's $2 million now, which okay. is
0: somewhat arbitrary,
3: but they have a way to qualify how much parts cost and manual labor and all that. Copy. And that's A. A B is going to be less than $2 million, no loss of life or aircraft, and greater than some number, say 500000 maybe? I think that's right. Yeah, and then Class C is going to be five hundred thousand and below, and then D is uh, more or less just a a nuisance. I will call it with an or an air to ground mishap.
0: Sure, I think you can get a Class B if you also have some sort of if not if if someone's killed, but if they are wounded badly enough, I think that can also qualify.
3: That's a great call. And you know what? I should have said it's an aviation ground mishap, not an air to ground mishap. So my apologies. Ah,
0: very good. Okay. (laughs) No problem. So you talked about the mishaps. Any of Yogi's follow-on questions you feel uh, like addressing
3: there? I mean, as far as did they affect you or uh, would you agree with my assessment of always training to these? Dude, you're spot on. I would say that uh, especially in the heat of the moment, it's going to be your training that kicks in. And it's also, uh, for me, it was my faith. Honestly, there's usually a prayer or two said while I'm executing the procedures.
0: Well, what a perfect segue into our next question, actually, from Jesse Rain, who says, "Jello and Sunshine, you guys mentioned that you are believers. I was curious if many that flew with you felt the same way and if there were any challenges having your beliefs. Sunshine, I flew with plenty of people who were believers and plenty who weren't, and I never saw any trouble with it. Usually, there wasn't a lot of evangelism going on. Everyone just kind of did what they needed to do and shared with other people if it was appropriate. And those who felt more strongly about it behaved certain ways than others. But I never saw really much to do about it. How about you?
3: Yeah, neither did I. I would say a little over 50% were believers of the different squadrons I've been in. And it's just, uh, you, know, you run the full gamut, right? From atheists all the way to uh, evangelicals, let's say. But I didn't notice anybody being unprofessional. Right. They would, you know, just like you said, absolutely like you said, if if it was inappropriate, it wasn't mentioned. I got to admit, the first CAG I ever had in S3s, he and I were sitting in Jabali eating lunch, and we chatted about an emergency that had just happened that ended up, uh, unfortunately, it killed Basher. Oh, yes. So we were talking about that, and he was basically an atheist, and he just totally believed in his training and himself. And I was, I was honestly very shocked because I had never met anyone like that before. But, uh, you know, that's that's how he rolled.
0: Yeah, and that's okay. Despite what you seem to hear these days on the news and everywhere else, we are all different. I think we need to be accommodating. And as we've said before on this show, I'm not going to hide my beliefs on certain things if it's part of the show, but I am also not using the show to propose to you that you should think or believe certain things. We're just going to answer questions, and you can make up your own mind. But, yep, never really saw it being a problem, and... I thought it was uh, just a good way to believe in something bigger than me and myself. So, all right, why don't we take a phone call next?
2: Joe Kunzler. I'm calling from
1: Skagit County, Washington State. From the pilot's perspective, how important is field carrier landing practice? Also, I understand you're going to be interviewing the former boss of the Blue Angels. Just want to say thank you to the Blue Angels for 31 July 2015 when I got to fly in the backseat of Fat Albert. I, I can't say thank you enough to all the Blues. Thanks so much for this opportunity to lob a question in as one of your division leads. Thanks.
3: Hey Joe, thanks very much. Joe's one of our division leads from Patreon, and thank you very much for the question. And just can't emphasize enough the importance of field carrier landing practice or FCLP. So FCLPs for me would have been uh, an outline Fields, Actually, we did it right at Lemoore or an outline field in Oceana is called Fentress. And I was always concerned, but there's nothing you can really do. At Fentress, is real close to a neighborhood, so we'd be doing FCLPs at like 2 o'clock in the morning. But the importance cannot be overemphasized on FCLPs. It's not only practice for the pilots in the landing pattern, checking scan techniques, timing, whatnot, and also making sure that they're interacting well with the ball or the eye flaws, but also it's for the LSOs, Jello, don't you think?
0: Oh, absolutely. And it's building that muscle memory that allows pilots and LSOs to be so safe when they go out and deploy. I mean, there's a real famous quote by George Will that he penned after the space shuttle discovery explosion that talked about the fact that they're out there doing it and you never hear about it is a testament to their professionalism. And it's true. I mean, we have to have this practice. Is there a good place to do it? Not really. Short of out in the middle of the desert and even there in Fallon, we get complaints from the few farmers times so it's a necessary noise that needs to be made for the price that we pay for freedom and neighborhoods that are built around airfields like that it's unfortunate but i don't know maybe some people actually like it i know a lot of people that do complain even here in san diego there's people on coronado that complain about the various helicopters and everything else buzzing around but you know it's the sound of freedom and i like it
3: I agree, and it's just a giant risk reduction effort. So, naval aviation, as you know and our listeners know, is inherently dangerous. Right. To get the mission done, we can't remove all the risk, but we can manage or mitigate them.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks for the phone call, Joe. Our last question today will be from Matthew Carruthers from Greeley, Colorado. He says, as a C-130 loadmaster, one task I had was to inspect the flare dispensers after use to ensure we did not have any hung flares. Is this inspection performed when an aircraft returns to the After dispensing flares? If so, by whom and what action is taken if an unsafe flare is found still in the box? Now, Sunshine, a little bit ago, you talked about the battle damage checks you did Mm -hmm. as part of your bombing with your S3. And in fact, anytime we release anything off the airplane, we will do those battle damage checks. And another thing we look for are those expendables, partially expended, and how many are remaining. And so if you see something abnormal, that's one way you can handle it. But then after we land, I don't know what your experience was, but mine was even if you still had some expendables left in the buckets, our aviation ordnance men wearing the red shirt in our squadron would take the bucket out and put a new bucket in, and then they would take the bucket over and consolidate the unused items, as we call them, later. And I presume that if there was something abnormal, they had a procedure for it, including, I want to say, all the way up to throwing the thing over the side of the ship. Does that sound
3: about right? (laughs) That absolutely does, yeah. Those ordies, they were in charge of all that. Cool.
0: Matthew, it would be our aviation ordnance personnel assigned to the squadron. All right, Sunshine, well, before we get to the interview, I want to invite you and all the listeners to check out the shop page on our podcast website. Sunshine, I know you've checked it out lately, but everyone else can head over, and there you can find links to various fighter pilot podcast-themed apparel and household items via our Cafe Press and Society6 partners, as well, we have Amazon links to the various books you might enjoy. Adding to your aviation library at home. Just head over to www.fighterpilotpodcast.com and at the top of the homepage, simply click on shop and you can make your way over and see all our various offerings. So take a look and tell us what you think. Thanks. All right, Sunshine, let's get straight to the interview. What do you think? Good idea. Here we go. All right, today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, I am in the residence of my good friend and retired U.S. Navy Captain, Mr. Tom Mitchell. Sir, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you, Vincent. I'm so delighted to be here.
0: Well, great. And it wasn't too difficult to get together. You're just down the street from me here on Coronado. and. I've been working on you for a while to get this episode, so thanks for taking the time.
1: It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to do this.
0: Awesome. Well, we are about to learn a little bit about you, and of the many aircraft you are going to tell us you flew, we're going to concentrate on the A7 Corsair II, if I got that right, today. But please give us a background. Where are you from? Tell us about your military career and what you did after, if you're willing, and what you're doing now, if it's relevant.
1: Well, first of all, I was born in the South, in the grand state of Alabama, in Birmingham. Okay. Lived there till I was 10. My dad changed jobs and moved us to North Carolina. His company then sent us to Connecticut, Indiana, and back to Carolinas when I'm a freshman in high school, halfway through. Graduated from high school out of Brevard, North Carolina. Went to Auburn University on a Navy ROTC scholarship. Okay. So then I went, of course, into flight training. All right. Uh, Went through there in about 15 months and came out on the other end, designated aviator, and got orders to Cecil Field, Florida, to fly the A-4 Skyhawk. Okay. So I went through training there, joined my squadron VA-36, and to my great interest, we went off to Vietnam first tour from the East Coast. Wow. Around the world cruise from the East Coast. And, of course, being in Vietnam was a real eye-opener, as you can imagine. Following that, we turned around and went to the Mediterranean on USS Forrestal. I, th- I don't know if I mentioned I was on Intrepid First Cruise, okay? which is now, of course, the museum like me. In, in New, New York. York. Yeah, That's right. Exactly. So, uh, following that tour, though, I got orders to Pensacola, uh, to VT4, where I was an LSO. I was an LSO, of course, in my fleet squadron. And... I had an opportunity also to be an air-to-air gunnery instructor, which is a bonus there because we did those two items at that time. Then I was asked before I left uh, Pensacola to go down to Sinatra Staff as the staff LSO and T2 stand officer. I got involved in actually moving CQ— out of Pensacola and spreading it around to Meridian and out to Texas. Okay. So that was an interesting when they started the single basing uh, at that time. Okay. This was in the seventy-one time frame.
0: And Sinatra is the chief of naval aviation training.
1: Yes, and he was in Pensacola, but then moved to Corpus. Okay, Corpus so Christi, Corpus Texas. Christi. Okay. From there, though, I got orders back to Cecil Field as an LSO to fly fours back on the Intrepid. Initially, we were a CVS, so we only had five aircraft, seven pilots, and did all the uh, air protection fighter cover for the Intrepid, which was an anti-submarine. Fantastic experience. We did 157 intercepts of Soviet aircraft. Wow. I mean, I had a lot of front and personal with some of those. It really? was an interesting experience. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, at that time for us, that was when Vietnam ramped up. So the USS America, Saratoga from the East Coast, got sent to Vietnam. They made us come home from North Atlantic, turned us around, and we went back to the Med for six months with 16 A-4s, 22 pilots as the attack carrier in the Med. Okay. Relieving, and we were the only carrier, only 16 A-4s protecting us, but we were great. So after that, though, I came back to Cecil Field, I got orders to VA-174 to be a LSO there and transitioned to the A-7. And I loved the A-7. I was pretty much A-7s from then on. My first A-7 fleet tour was VA-15, the Valiants, mm-hmm. as a department head, USS America the whole time. Came out of there, was on the light of attack wing staff, and I really enjoyed that tour. Screened for command and went to VA 46, which is the Klansman. Okay. And we were deployed first on USS John F. Kennedy, and I was XO. After the turnaround, and I took over, we went back to the America. Finished my CO tour, we did really well. We won the Safety S, we won the Battle E. It was an amazing squadron, Uh, a lot of history there. From there, I went to be the Air Boss on USS Nimitz out of Norfolk, and that was. Probably the hardest tour of my career, but uh, fortunately I screened for command of a RAG, the uh, A-7 Fleet Training Squadron, and a lot of friends said, well, you should be going back to Cecil to 174, because that was your life, but I got screened for 122 up in Lemoore, Hmm. and it was funny, my wife said... Ah, that's great. We could see somewhere else than Jacksonville. So I mean she loved tax, but you know. Yeah. So we go to Lamore, I did a tour at one twenty two as CO, it was amazing. Down here I was on the AirPac staff as air training officer. Three years, eight months, two days and fifteen minutes, but who was counting? <laughs> and then I went over to the Fax Fleet Air Control and Surveillance Facility mm-hmm. here and did a tour there, which I loved. It was kind of a reward I think for all those years going to sea. I also talked my way into flying the King Air, the C-12, with North Island. Got my ATP pilot rating there and retired out of that tour. Was fortunate enough to get hired by FedEx and spent a lot of time there, 14 years working in training, working as a Czech airman, flight standards, and then just a good old line pilot. So retired from that at the end of 05, and I love being in Coronado. It's a great place. Uh, awesome. It's awesome. So yeah.
0: And as far as fax fact goes, I always struggle with that one. They correct me if I'm wrong. Deal with the ranges off the coasts, and so that the various users can be scheduled and deconflicted.
1: Well, it? it's also the range, but we do all the air traffic control. Oh, okay. You know, we interface with the FAA. So okay. if you fly off shore, you're talking to Beaver. You come mm-hmm. back in. Interestingly, we also own the same facility in Hawaii, Hula Dancer, maybe you've okay. talked with them. But and anyway, those
0: are the call signs. People that's a call Hula sign. Dancer, that was a radio right. call sign. And then so on the East
1: Coast, I believe it's Giant Killer. Giant Killer and Sea Lord. Sea Lord. Okay. The that two, sounds right. Two on the East right. Coast. Yeah.
0: So how many total years of military service? 27. 27. How many
1: total flight hours? Total flight hours was over 5,000. Wow. Yeah. And I, how many in the A-7? Well, the A-7 was right at 2,700. Okay. How many carrier uh, landings? 1,083. Holy smokes. A lot, yeah. That is so, a lot. Yeah, so.
0: All right, well, I usually save this till the very end, but gee, Tom, thank you for your service and your experience. Well, that is incredible.
1: Thank you, Vincent. <laughs> and
0: um, you know what else, by the way, I'm ashamed to admit this, having known you now for a couple of years. Did you have a call sign you went by?
1: Call signs, yes. And you know, those are always interesting things, oh, yes. right? So when I first started my first squadron tour, there really weren't what I'd call call signs. People had nicknames, sure. and they kind of morphed into some of those. Mm-hmm. My next fleet tour in A4s, I got the call sign initially because my roommate, we kind of started this Lone Ranger Tonto between the two of us. Okay. He was the Lone Ranger, I was Tonto. But that morphed into Ranger and Indian. Hmm. So I was Indian. You were Indian. But that didn't last long. I got back into the A7 world Now, I don't know how I got this call sign, but it turned out to be Demon. (laughs) It's not very appropriate, from what I know of you. (laughs) Well, it's it's the opposite, you know. The Uh, opposites attract. Sure. All right. I think it was because I was fairly aggressive well, though, as a pilot.
0: <laughs> I know you as Tom. I'm probably going to just keep calling you Tom or sir, Tom, if that's okay. <laughs> no, no, just Tom.
1: No sirs required. All right, perfect.
0: Yeah. Well, we got ahead of ourselves. That's the call that's sign, okay. but we'll, we'll come back to that at the end. And as we already mentioned, today we are talking about the A7, although you could certainly come back, sounds like, and talk about the A4. And let's start off with what the A7 was designed to do.
1: The A-7 is primarily air-to-ground weapons delivery platform. Mm-hmm. And I will say, having flown the A-4, by the time you get to the A-7C and E, which were the later versions of it, mm-hmm. phenomenal delivery capability. I mean, I, I can tell you stories about things that just you can't believe. It, flying the A-4, we were strictly mill-setting on a gun site mm-hmm. and, you know, just manual everything. Although forward firing was sure fun, but sure rockets and gun pods and all that mm-hmm. but but the a seven was phenomenal uh weapons delivery platform. it did have air to air capability, had two sidewinder rails on it right, and was an awesome machine so Good. I, I love it and of course, it was one of the most advanced at its time by the time we got to the Charlie and the echo because it had the heads up display you right. know the uh, projected map system i mean it was really a sophisticated airplane for its time. Sure.
0: Maybe seems a little old by F-35 standards today, but this came out, what, in the late 60s? Right. And so when those later models debuted in the, what, early to mid-70s, mm-hmm. you're talking established heads-up display, moving map, computers, radar for the navigation. So It, it, was,
1: it was awesome. Pretty I mean, lethal. it really mm-hmm. was. You know, inertial nav system. Right. I mean, the, that map system was awesome because it was linked to your uh, inertial nav. Mm-hmm. And uh, also you could do radar updates on it. You could do all kind of things with it. So it was great. Now, I was an A-4, a 4 2 tour fleet guy. So to me, the HUD was not necessary on landing. <laughs> and I actually got so, as I got in close, I would turn it down because huh. it distracted me. Uh-huh. Now, everybody would say, what? <laughs>
0: yeah. And
1: there were guys later, especially that had been only A-7E pilots, I called HUD cripples. If the HUD went down, particularly at night, they were too.
0: Yeah, that's right. You know, so. yeah. Well, as an F-18 pilot most of my career, I can put myself in that category. But to be fair, it was our primary attitude reference. No, it was. And it was pretty reliable. So when it did fail, which was rare, it was an emergency, frankly, at the carrier, not at the field. Yeah,
1: well, I got so I really appreciate the HUD, in all honesty, right. yeah, as I got more experience with it.
0: Well, in preparing to have this interview, I did a little study on the A7 because mm-hmm. I did not fly it, mm-hmm. and I read that it was designed to replace the A4, Right, and that as part of the design requirement, they wanted a design that wasn't entirely new, I guess, to save time or money. Mm-hmm. And so it's an LTV-A7, right? And that's Ring, Timio, right? And Vought was the creator of the F-8 Crusader. Correct. And so I read that they took the F-8 changed it a little bit enough to meet the restrictions of, we want you to use something that already exists, and that became the A7, and that explains the relationship between the two almost like cousins. Is that
1: fair to say? Exactly. Okay. You know, yeah. I did
0: not know that before a couple hours ago.
1: Yeah. No, but. the uh, Crusader had some unusual things, like the wing that came up to really put the Fuchelads down.
0: Right, variable so angle, angle of incidence. I believe right, was. so they mm-hmm. wanted
1: to avoid that with the A7. Right. So, you know, our nickname was Slough.
0: And this is a family show. So. It's a
1: family show, but it was a short, little, ugly fellow. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, so uh, and we we jokingly loved that, you know, yeah, it was sure. fluff, you know. And at times it looked pretty good. Of course, it had a a more rounded nose. It wasn't it wasn't supersonic like mm-hmm. the F eight. The F eight was a neat airplane. I deployed with the F eight my first uh, in our Air Wing. We mm-hmm. had F eight, so sure. I, I got a a large taste of F eight. So yeah. Yes,
0: they were a proud bunch, as I understand. I'm still hoping to. Invite one of those pilots on the show. Now, my next question, and you've already kind of answered it, is what does it do well? You said it's a pretty stable and accurate bomber. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. Right. And it's a, a devastating forward firing. The later models, the starting with the C, had the Gatlin gun on board, the M61. The same gun as in the F-18? It is. Mm-hmm. and I, Well, you know, you've flown it, but oh, yes. it is unbelievable right. what it can do. Right, so, And I, that we actually had a guy I'll never forget in the rag on his name tag he had custom strafing that was his (laughs) his specialty that was his specialty and (laughs) you could do it Okay. You could draw Zorro in the desert, if you want, with that thing. Wow. You know, it was so accurate. Plus, yeah. it had
0: many more rounds, almost double the F-18, which for the Legacy Hornet was about 550 or yeah, so. Yeah, we could carry 1,000. Yeah, had over 1,000, yeah. right? Yeah. Did it have the same rate of fire, do you recall, about 6,000 rounds? Four and six. We had four low and, and high fires. Exactly. That so what the f yep. Yeah,
1: four and 6,000. Wow. Very per cool. Minute, per minute, yeah.
0: Okay. Now let's talk through the variants, and we can just go through methodically, beginning with the A model, which I believe was the first deployed or uh, combat was, ready aircraft. It was
1: the first one, yes, and it was. I think in sixty-seven they came out and actually deployed.
0: It went to combat that very it year. It did. Wow. It did. It
1: sure did. Yeah. So now I will say one sort of weakness you might be compared to the A four. The A four was such a flyby connections, you know, and See, no the, hydraulic uh-huh. like the A7. A7 was hydraulic dependent on a lot. Okay. So if you get, took a wrong hit, you were in big trouble in the A7. Right. The A4 was more battle worthy in that regard, but still the A7 did a great job. So I flew the A, not a lot, but when I went to the RAG, we had a few A's and I had a chance to fly it and uh, I hate to admit it, what we used it for were logistic runs to go get Coors beer and lobsters. <laughs> <laughs> Because it would go a long way. Right. A couple of drop tanks on it, yeah. and uh, it was light, you know, and it would it would long haul cross country.
0: Where would you make these logistical carries, if well, you Well,
1: know? uh, usually we went to uh, Yuma to okay. get Coors Beer. Sorry, no, I meant where oh. did
0: you carry them on the airplane?
1: Oh, we carried a Blivet.
0: Okay, so In, that's a fuel tank that's been converted to... It's a fuel tank
1: converted to a luggage, luggage carrier. Luggage sure. yeah. Okay. So you would land at Brunswick, Maine. You would have ordered the lobster they bring the boxes with lobster live and put them in the plane and we'd fly them back were they alive when you landed ah uh, they were let's say resting Resting. They were resting. A little <laughs> oxygen deprived.
0: And you had to go to Yuma for beer? Was this back when... Well, uh, we had
1: a dead out there, so it was easy uh, okay. to do. Because yeah, right. the airplane could be turned around quickly and the beer could be made available.
0: And that would stay cold. This sounds like an aviation version of Smoky and the Bandit.
1: It was kind of Smoky and the Bandit. It was fun, <laughs> though. Yeah. It was a good time. It was a good time. We had a great I'm seeing
0: day. a different side of you, Tom. I don't yeah. see on Sunday mornings. No, no, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I, that wasn't me that did that. Oh, oh, oh you yeah. just heard I was about just it. watching. You yeah. heard about I it. I was watching from afar. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now, on the A model, it also had single-barrel 20-millimeter cannon, not the Gatling gun that we had. Correct. There. Both All the
1: right. E and the Bravo. The second sure. version just had the cannon. Right. Mark 12, I believe. Was and then
0: the Bravo had, now, in this case, so, for example, an F-18A is a single seat and a mm-hmm. B is a two-seat. Now Otherwise, they're pretty identical. We had two-seat variants of the A7, but they didn't get their own suffix.
1: Uh, well, right. well, we had the TA seven. it okay. was Called. All right. So, so they had it, a T
0: at the beginning, right? So we never had, for example, TFA eighteen.
1: No, no. We no, you didn't because you made two models from the. You, right. you learned the hard way. I mean, you learned from our hard way. Right. When I went to fly the A four, as a nugget, there were no two seaters. Really. My first flight in the A four was solo. But same with the A seven. But
0: after many many cockpit trainer evolutions True, of and. Course. And Christ. probably oral exams and everything else.
1: But and the same was true in the A seven though. Wow, when I okay. went to the RAG, we did not have T A sevens. Wow. So that was seventy three. Okay. So it was after that. And what they did, they converted all Bravos and then the Charlies. To the T model, so they were conversions, they not were conversions. off the factory. They home. were not factory from the ground. And so,
0: up. did you sacrifice what, some fuel or something? No, they kept about the same fuel oh, and everything. Interesting. Yeah,
1: okay. but they all had the TF thirty engines in them, the smaller, less powerful. Because when the Echo came along, they upgraded it to the TF forty one, which was more powerful and everything.
0: And the A seven did not have afterburner on any of its no. engines. Okay,
1: until they tried to create one to compete. Oh, really? They actually did. They okay. made two A7Fs, which oh. you've probably never heard of. No, nope. it was a F100 Pratt and Whitney, which developed. It had a burner, twenty six thousand pounds oh, of wow. thrust compared to fifteen thousand yeah. in the Echo. So hmm. okay, and it was a lot of people wanted it, but you know by that time the F18 was coming. So, sure, yeah,
0: and so the Bravo and the Charlie were incremental improvements, right?
1: Absolutely. And then
0: the Air Force, as I read earlier, was told, no, nah, you're going to take this also because they wanted something else. And so the Delta became an
1: Air Force? It did. Right? Of course, it really wasn't designed for carrier ops, you know, right. so they took away some things with that. And, of course, they changed the refueling to a receptacle a plug.
0: Well, that's what they were used to. Yeah. The and they added the an
1: APU, though, which was oh. kind of nice for them.
0: You guys didn't have an APU, no, so no you needed APUs an external puffer yeah. yeah.
1: right. for a start. Okay.
0: Yeah. Which can be a pain when you're trying to get in and out exactly. of someplace quickly, right? It was nice to have airplanes
1: okay. with APUs, which you don't often have. So. And
0: then did the Navy say, oh, Air Force, we're going to cherry pick some of the improvements you put on the D and turn those into the E?
1: No, not, I think they totally. developed about c- together, really. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I don't think that was the case. I don't believe.
0: Okay. Well, that yeah. was simply my interpretation they came of came
1: I they came along... Pretty much in the same time frame as I oh, recall. Because okay. when I got to the RAG in 73 as an instructor, we had E's. They were there on property and had already been in combat and everything. Mm-hmm. So
0: Okay. And then there were some various other onesie, twosie variants. You talked about the F. Mm-hmm. There were different nomenclature variants for Greece and Portugal, which Correct. was the two countries which I had
1: H for Hellenic and P for Portugal. Okay, like there
0: that. you go. And then you did tanking as well, but we didn't call it, what, a KA-7? Or no, no,
1: they? no. It was just, you just a, he slapped, had the pod.
0: You just slapped the pod on, yeah. and suddenly you're a tanker. That's right. Okay. Yeah.
1: Did you do some of that? Oh, quite a bit. Oh, really? Sure, yeah. Okay. I mean, it was a standard mission for us. Oh. Uh, we would often put tankers up, you know, and hmm. we'd have a ready tanker sometimes, you know, right. with the A-7, so he could be sitting there in case somebody got into trouble or, sure. you know.
0: We did have an episode on aerial refueling and did uh-huh. talk about, we call it now the titler, which is an unfortunate name, but the turning tanker last recovery, uh-huh. where it was ready to go at the sure. end of the night because you had trouble. Kind of the and, same and, idea, mm-hmm. not
1: necessarily turning, but ready to go, you know, sure. you know all prime
0: Those so. probably could start up fairly quickly and get out of all the chocks though, right? I'm guessing. Well,
1: you could. Yeah. Well, although normally you'd be there and have your platform aligned, sure. everything ready to go, just crank up. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha.
0: Now, I don't have anywhere else to ask this, so I'll just do it here. Single engine around the carrier, did that ever rear its ugly head? Did it ever bother you? I mean, the Navy, for the longest time, I guess between the mid-70s and now, got away from that. But here we come back to it with the F-35, and they Mm -hmm. all claim, oh, the engine's so reliable, we won't have a problem. And I once read, even if we have a problem, it's still cheaper to lose a couple airplanes, the F-35, than it is to have a two-engine variant. Did you have any issues with your one and only engine around the carrier?
1: No, I didn't. But you know, I started out flying the A four, right? So I accepted that. And when I went to the A seven, it was just a transition to another airframe. Sure. You know, okay. so I mean, yes, you certainly thought about oh, right. But the one Benny we had was it was called ejection seat. That's right. The <laughs> so rocket seat you're sitting on. <laughs> that's right? right. Yeah. You can jettison that the airplane. Your, you can jettison the plane. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Now. The next question is to pick a feature about the aircraft and describe why it looks the way it does. But I think we've already talked about the fact that it looks very much like an F8, mm-hmm. although without the angle of incidence variable wing. Mm-hmm. And then did you say so because of the word slough, so they took the F8 which to me seems stretched but in fact the F8 was compacted and turned into the A7. Is that effectively
1: true? Well, yes, in a, in a way, yes. Okay. It was short it was shorter I think it was 46 feet in length, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm not sure of the F8, but it was definitely longer because right. when you put them side by side, yeah. Okay. It was definitely longer because of the burner mm-hmm. primarily. And when they built the prototype of the F model which had a burner, they had to lengthen the tail to accommodate it. Uh, but, okay. you know, only a couple of those. Yes. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah, there were only two ever made. Right. Yeah.
0: What about the low slung nose intake for the engine? Did that create any foreign object debris concerns? It
1: could. I mean, we had incidents, obviously, right. some very tragic incidents with it. You oh, know? no, like
0: yeah. on the flight deck uh, right yeah. before launch? Okay. Right, right.
1: right. So that, that, that was true. Um, the other disconcerting thing is the pilot. You got to dive the duck, we called it.
0: Oh, the pilot did, not the plane captain. Well, the
1: plane captain did, but before you went, you did it yourself. Well, with one engine, that seems... And I'm telling you what, (laughs) to be down, all the way down by your turbine blades, Mm -hmm. and you hear all these other noises outside you, airplanes turning and things, and you're thinking... God, somebody's not doing the huffer, is? They? Yeah. They're not starting my airplane. Are you get they? a little nervous down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can imagine. Yeah. Okay, and you're in your flight gear, you know, so you're diving the duck we right. called it. Yeah. with
0: all your gear hanging on. Yeah, you yeah. didn't want to leave a flashlight or anything else. Well, down there. Well, that's
1: true too. You right. back, well, actually, you went in and backed out. So as you backed out, oh, you, you could, could see looking. what was sure. left.
0: Yeah. Uh, there probably wasn't enough room to turn around down there. Really, anyway. there, it's true. Okay, you'd have to be for small. most of us,
1: yeah, you'd have to be pretty small <laughs> to turn around. Okay.
0: All right, Tom, tell me what you carried on the A7 Corsair two oh, ordnance-wise. Everything,
1: everything, everything. I mean, we carried, start out with, of course, the standard bombs, Mark 82, 83, right. 84s. Were Free big,
0: fall and retarded and bombs. And retarded,
1: yep. I got great stories about those. Okay. And, you know, as time went on, it carried variants of everything. So, like, we started out with Shrike, and then it went to harm, you know, missiles. Uh, we could carry the... Cluster bombs, i.e., eventually rock Mm eyes. You had so many different things that we could do. Uh, We did mining of it. Yeah, we dropped mines, which were, you know, really they were like bombs, but, you know, they, gosh, what else? Uh, Rockets. We had, we could do rockets. That was one of my favorite things in the world were rockets. Uh, Five inch Zunis are just like taking a laser and pointing it at something. (laughs) Just awesome.
0: I only had one chance to shoot rockets really? towards the yeah. end of my career. It yeah, was, it was yeah. fun. I wish yeah. I'd had more.
1: So it, w- it was great. Um, let me see. I was trying to think of a bunch of other stuff that we had put on that. I've separate. got a couple jotted down. Sure. Maybe
0: it will jog your memory. Of course, we talked about the gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, laser-guided weapons?
1: Oh, absolutely. Okay. Now, in my day, no. That was a follow-on. Oh. I mean, after my time. Okay. You know, And we had FLIR. That was you not. Did. That was not a...
0: Okay. So know. later on, they later could employ on, they, it and guide it.
1: Right, Good. so I I got into the very beginning of FLIR, but you know now today it's standard practice mm-hmm. for you guys, you know, so which is pretty special.
0: Right, and you talked earlier about the Aim Nine Sidewinder, and was mm-hmm. that primarily a kind of a self-defense it if you was. find yourself in a it fight, was. then you can employ it, but yeah. they were never going to use you for any kind of mix sweep So just the Aim Nine on the Aim Seven, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: emergency ration. You gotcha. Know, okay,
0: yeah. uh, and then the Walleye, a TV-guided glide weapon. Abs- abs- yep, mm-hmm. absolutely,
1: and you know. It went from being a straight walleye, which the pilot flew it, he had a screen, he would see his target, lock it on and launch it. But once it launched, it was on its own. Right. So they developed the datalink walleye. So he had a follow airplane that he received datalink back to him. But the idea was the lead guy comes in hot and fast. Sure. So the weapon got max velocity because mm-hmm. it was a glider, it wasn't right. powered. And then the data link guy picked it up. So, yeah, that was a great improvement because the original lies like you were going for a bridge and a truck would drive across and it'd pick up the truck and follow it <laughs> and it might leave the bridge, you know, so it was right. not going to get the target. Oh, bummer. Little things like sure. that were... You know, they said, "Oops, we got to fix that." So
0: in my first fleet squadron in the F eighteen, we still had the Walleye. It was yeah. called the Walleye two Erdel mm-hmm. E R D L Extended mm-hmm. Range Datalink. Right. And when you hung one of those, they painted them white for some reason. When you hung one on an F eighteen, it looked like a hole in another airplane.
1: It did. It was those big. things were
0: like twenty six hundred pounds.
1: They were big and so it had the big wings on. Oh them gosh, yeah. For gliding with it, yeah. And
0: we tried a couple different times to employ <laughs> one. We had it in our inventory mm-hmm. too, and for whatever reason, we had problems with the data link. Marriage, or something else. The range went cold one time, so I still have some pictures somewhere, not digitally, unfortunately. But it looked pretty impressive. And unfortunately, I never had a chance to employ one.
1: Yeah.
0: And then the last one, and we'll of course, have to lower our voices here a little bit, is nuclear weapons.
1: Yes. We had them. Yes.
0: yes. <laughs> I did not mean you really had to, but
1: well, did, we, was it a
0: mission you trained to?
1: Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And you know, we had to do. As you probably remember, you have to do loading crew training mm-hmm. and be able to load the weapons, and not only, of course, then fly them and deliver them. But right. yeah, so yeah.
0: So when you were in an A seven squadron, did every pilot have that capability, or yes. was it
1: really okay? Yeah. It wasn't just yeah. the
0: COXO and a no, few department heads. No, no, no,
1: no. Okay. Well, most everybody was given a target to plan. Wow. Yeah. Okay. At least that's what we did.
0: Yeah. were those interpreted to be missions you were going to recover from or that uh, look, and I, the
1: a7 yes in the a4 I'm not so sure right, that's what uh, <laughs> well the a4 <laughs> was developed as a one-way nuclear delivery vehicle seriously oh. the a4 alpha had no refueling capability and was made that's what it was designed for well, yeah not to get off airplanes but yeah right right so
0: well I'm hoping to have an episode on the a4 we can delve more into that how about performance Max speed, max G's,
1: altitude? Max speed was just under 600 knots. Okay. About five... Subsonic. seven. Yeah, subsonic, okay. 572 or somewhere okay. around there. Mm-hmm. Max service ceiling up about 43,000. All right. G's, they tried to limit you under seven. Okay. But you could routinely pull up to six or more, you know, sure. and not hurt it. I know the Hornet's a lot more than that. Seven and a half. Oh, is it? Well, yeah, yeah I think we were close to, you know, but mm-hmm. but you had the power to pull it more... Hours you pull six Gs and it was a bleed down pretty fast. You right. Know? So, well, yeah. F eighteen
0: is too. F sixteen is it really? as much. Yeah, yeah. How close uh, to all those limits did you get in your time? In the I think F-18? I
1: knocked on all the doors. <laughs> I one time was on a test flight up at forty something thousand, and uh, it, this was over Florida, and the guy cleared me to make a rapid descent, and it was as close as I ever came to making supersonic. <laughs> but I'll never forget the ATC guy, guy goes. How fast are you coming down? He couldn't even keep up with it almost.
0: It was just in giant chunks of uh, altitude being lost. That's crazy. Wow. Okay. Now, what would you identify, Tom, as some strengths of the A7? In a moment, I'll ask you about any weaknesses.
1: Well, the real strengths were it had, and we've already talked about this, Mm -hmm. but the systems were just phenomenal in the A7E particularly. Mm -hmm. I loved it. I thought it was just a phenomenal machine. And the backups, you know, it had dual hydraulics and uh, a lot of backup system like blowing the gear and flaps and doing those Mm -hmm. kind of things for emergency. Later, they added blowing the fueling probe out. Oh. Because early on, that fueling probe, if you lost hydraulics, was not going to move. And I I got stories about that's not a good thing. (laughs) I can imagine. So they said, oops, we better fix that. So they fixed a way to blow the probe out as well. So Wow. So it had a lot of good features Okay. That way. Did it have a ram air turbine you could deploy? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And it was great. You know, sure. Dropped the rat out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was great.
0: All right. So just touching on briefly the bombing, I mean, so if you were using the little blue, you probably remember, Mark 76, mm-hmm. or even just unguided 500-pound bombs, mm-hmm. I mean, was it fairly regular to get good CEPs? Oh, and absolutely. And eyes with that? Just absolutely. Free fall?
1: It was great. You know, and I, I'm not enough familiar with uh, Hornet, but you know, we had two primary air-to-ground modes. One was called normal attack. Mm. So if you looked in your flight path marker, it put a little diamond. So you'd fly the airplane to put the diamond on the target, designate it, right. and then the you followed the bomb fall line, and the thing would take over and drop, release the bomb. If you had a good bomber, it was... Yep. It was wicked. We
0: had something similar. We I'm called sure. it auto. Yeah, the auto FAT, mode. Right? It, it was right. an auto you mode. You just held on the pickle, and exactly. when there was time, it came out. Same off.
1: thing. Mm-hmm. Did you have like a computed, constant constantly computed, computed impact. impact point, yeah. CCIP?
0: I liked CCIP. that mode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was fun.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you a story about that? Absolutely. I'm okay. going to
0: ask you about a sea story anyway, well, so let's is, do it now.
1: Okay, so I'm bombing using Mark 82 snake eyes. Okay,
0: that's the it, fins that open the fins and that open the
1: retarded weapon. And we're down bombing Vieques which was the island off Puerto Rico. So, on the east end of the island, <clears throat> and there's truck down there as the target on this case. Mm-hmm. So, I roll in, and I want to use CCIP because I can press a little bit more with it, you know, and I felt like I was more comfortable. The crosswind was so strong, it was like 30, 40 knots from the right, wow. that I couldn't even get CCIP on it in the hut. <laughs> I was impossible. Right. So, all right, what do you do? Normal attacks or auto. Mm-hmm. So, I switched to that put it on the truck, designated. The bomb fall line rocketed off my hood. Of course, upwind. So I broke into it. I caught it, especially since it was retarded. I caught up with it, flew down it, got the release. And so I'm offset from Mm -hmm. the target. So I pull up and watch. That sucker opened, flew over, and got a bullseye. (laughs) And I couldn't believe it. I'm standing there aghast yeah. myself. And it wasn't me. It was the airplane. Well, the you
0: put it where it needed to be. Well, but I know. <laughs> but, but it
1: it's unbelievable that, that it yeah. did that under such horrid circumstances, mm-hmm. you know, that it was that accurate. So wow. yeah, that yeah. was amazing. Yeah. Was
0: low altitude tactics part of your, like the A4 was pretty well known for that and the A6 especially. Yeah. Was, that was in your repertoire We as did well? have it in okay. our
1: repertoire. Not recommended in combat, but we no, had it. Yeah, no, that's
0: been proven, but it yeah. can be effective. How about any weaknesses with the A seven? I mean, oh, we touched yeah. on the single engine, but
1: well, first of all, you know, it was not a super. I mean, the the echo was a definite improvement with a, a little more powerful engine, mm-hmm. but it was not a super powerful airplane. Okay, but it was it was adequate, you might say. The other thing, being a turbofan, especially on approach, you had to really stay on top of it because there was a little bit of lag in the throttle. Okay, and as an LSO, I did a tour in the rag teaching guys, and I'd said. If you find yourself sitting there thinking, "When should I add power?" you waited too long. <laughs> put it on <laughs> that's right, and then if if it's too much, take it a little off, sure so you know that was that was an issue actually you really you worked the throttle really hard on that airplane. you
0: didn't want to get behind,
1: you didn't okay. want to get behind because it was not a good thing. Another really disturbing characteristic was the airplane on a wet runway. Hmm. On normal landing, dry runway, you land, you pull the nose up, and arrow brake. Okay. Because the wing had such lift on it. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, on a wet runway, it had such lift. You hydroplane. Oh, gosh. A lot. So standard practice, if you had it, was a field-arrested landing on a wet runway. Hmm. I mean... Did the aircraft it, have anti-skid? It did have anti-skid, but even with that, you could get yourself in trouble. Wow. Depending on the runway and okay. where. So... That was a problem, you know, so... Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. All
0: right. Well, what about notoriety? Where would the listener have seen the A7, either in Hollywood or in the media or the news? I mean, it's kind of held a relatively low profile, I feel like, but... Where would people know it from?
1: Well, there's not many places they would know it from. Okay. I think the opening of Top Gun shows one taxiing around. <laughs>
0: it's some imagery they captured. Yeah, I that's guess that's a little imagery. Right, right. Uh,
1: the movie Final Countdown uh, was on USS Nimitz, and there were scenes of A-7s doing things on mm-hmm. it. You know.
0: Yeah, there is a scene where, and I only remember it because it was VA-86, and I went to Mm VFA-86, where an A-7 pilot, as part of the story, has a problem. He traps, and then he shuts down the wires, and then they extract him. You see a very brief clip of them pulling him out. And I forget if it had something to do with the story or just an extra little bit to make it more dramatic. But, yeah, that is one place they've seen it. And then, again, not a lot of glory, but in the opening scene, right after the words in Top Gun, when you start to see the dark... Carrier deck operations with the steam. There are some snippets of A7 there.
1: All right. Well, I got to share with you, when I need my Navy fix, even mm-hmm. today, all right. I have Top Gun, and I play the opening <laughs> credits. I don't watch the whole movie, but I just play the credits. All that music, and like you say, the the, the build-up to the launch yep. just energizes you
0: know, Well, so. they're working on the second one. I hope they it's are. as good. That'll Brother, keep us Brother going Tom next... was here not long ago. That's right, yeah. yeah. That, that'll keep us going, hopefully, the next 30 you years. Bet you betcha. to, you betcha.
1: Anyway, any other good sea stories with the A7? Well, you know, there was a lot of things with the A7. Um, when I was in VA-46, that was a CO tour. Mm-hmm. We worked up with Admiral... Um, uh, help me here. <laughs> Jerry Tuttle. <laughs> I'm
0: not sure I can help you. <laughs> Admiral Jerry Tuttle. he okay.
1: was known as. Jerry O. Tuttle. Okay. The guy was so creative. I mean, we did so many crazy things. We went from the East Coast all the way up to the U.K. gap with no radio transmissions. We got called upon to sortie down to cover some stuff in Lebanon, and we're not even deployed. We're just working up and doing this exercise over there. I mean, this guy was something else, you know. He had me plan a strike, which was single pass on a target using 12 snake eyes on one pass. Well, on the A7, normal stations... Uh, that would be bomb-to-bomb collision. So we had to put them on the far outboards. Oh, so six on either side. But he let me do it. <laughs> he let us do it. We, uh, and we bombed the Vieques, by the way. And, and when, the it practice, allowed, yeah. when it was still allowed. When it was still allowed. So, you know, those kind of things were just incredible. Uh, I was on there in 1976 when the ambassador to um, the U.S. was assassinated. In Lebanon, Ooh. and we were sortied over there with the A7s and flew air cover for the evacuation of those people. You know, wow. we defied Gaddafi on the line of death mm-hmm. off Libya, and we were right after we left on Kennedy. Nimitz pulled in. That's when Kleiman and those guys shot down. The uh, Libyans. MiG-23s, you know. I want to say. Okay. Yeah, yeah. VFA-40,
0: or VAF-41 at the time. Yeah, yeah. Right. The
1: black, yeah, the Black Aces. Right. Yeah, exactly, 41, right. Kleeman, yeah. So anyway, they had just relieved us. Darn, we should have <laughs> But anyway. So.
0: Okay. Well, so you never had to jettison the airplane, as we put it mm-hmm. earlier? No, That's I never good. did. I okay. had some
1: moments I wondered about, you know, where fuel controls failed, uh-huh. and you had to go manual, and the A-7, though, was... Pretty doggone reliable that way. Okay. So. Any ordnance employed in Anger that you're willing to share? Not on the A-7. Not on the A-7. Uh, A-4, okay. yes. Right. <laughs> okay. Bunches. yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. And then you touched on it. We didn't really cover it. Um, three weapon stations per wing, I want to say, right? And then two fuselage for right, A-9. Exactly. And it was too low to the ground, I guess, to have a center line. Is that correct? Or did no, it have There was no
1: center line. Nothing yeah. on the center? No. no. We, okay. Actually, you know, the speed brake came out. Oh. Have you ever seen the speed brake in the A7? No, I don't believe it's I have. It's unbelievable. If if you deploy the speed brake, it's this thing that comes down, huh. and it has even a, a, a longer extension here. It is huge. And matter of fact, we had a guy on a fly-in at Cecil that the speed brake jammed down, Ooh. and he had to land right on it.
0: Otherwise, when you put the gear down, does it automatically retract? No. It was up to the pilot?
1: <laughs> well, but normally, you know, yeah. Okay. But normally, um, I've never seen this happen, and this was the only time. And this guy's speed brake was down; he had to land. So, mm-hmm. you know, we had to talk him down for a pretty shallow rate. And even when he hit, that thing was so strong, the first part of it that the plane porpoised oh, down the runway like that. Wow. You know, scary. Yeah, very scary incident. You wow. know, so, so yeah, the speed brake would have been in the way of any center line, and the airplane was too low wow. for anything. Yeah. So, Crazy. But we could carry, uh, you know, like a tanker could carry four drop tanks and a store. Mm-hmm. Think of that. Wow. You know, so you could have a lot of fuel. On a, lot, a lot of give. You, you could, bet. Yeah. Right. Usually carry two in a store, but yeah. Okay. So.
0: Well, that has been an amazing discussion on the A7 Corsair II. I didn't know hardly anything before today and a little research, and you have certainly taught me more, Tom.
1: Thank Did you I very much. Did I give you a little something extra? You bet. So we were talking about the other variants of the the Greeks and the Portuguese. Mm-hmm. So when I was at the rag, we transitioned the first 5 Greek pilots to okay. the A7. And they flew up until 2014. The Greeks, wow. the a- a- so the last A7s flying were uh, in Greece. And huh. a bunch of guys went over cuz we had, you know, we had contacts with them. Sure. So yeah. And they're part of our A seven Corsair two association, as are the Portuguese. Okay. And, you know. Oh, fun. So, anyway, otherwise, in the U S., they made
0: it through Desert Storm. They did, and then retired not long after. I believe that's right? correct. Okay. Well, we, the, our
1: last ones were like May of ninety one. And I think the Air Guard started taking them out in 93. Oh,
0: gosh. Because they, yeah, the,
1: they had the Deltas. Desert
0: Storm was January 91, so right. it wasn't long after no, that. No, well, it oh, was wow.
1: VA 4672, my squadron, but okay. of course I wasn't there, Right. Uh, that were in it. And what happened to them, they were supposed to transition to the Hornet. That was just, put on hold. And that was said, nope, not so fast, guys. Right. Get back in your A-7s, Kennedy's going to Desert Storm. Well, guess what happened? They transitioned 37105, it was supposed to be disestablished. 4672 come home, they're gone. Two very historic, wonderful Oh, wow. Spawner. Okay. I'm and the sad. other ones are still around. Yeah. Huh. Well, you know. That's sometimes. the way it is. Yeah, man. it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah. Can't cry over that. But it was, A7 had a good life, you know, uh, 1967 to 91, very active airplanes. So, right. Yeah. Well, it had a long
0: and storied career, much like many of its pilots, including you. Yeah. Tom, I want to thank you for your time today to explain the A7 Corsair II. I also want to thank you on behalf of the listener for your 27 years and over 5,000 hours, over 1,000 traps. That is impressive. You should write a book. and But if not, maybe at least we've got you on in the podcast here. But usually we wrap up with a story on your call sign. I think we've already covered that, unless you had any other good ones after Demon.
1: Not for me. No. Okay. I can tell
0: other call signs. No, that's... But but not that. We'll save that for a rainy day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this has been a real pleasure and honor. And also on a personal note, if I may, I want to thank you for your mentorship to me. Um, Just for the sake of the listener who they say when I say personal stuff, they enjoy to get to know me better. Uh, You took me under your wing a couple of years ago. I was retiring from the Navy. And on Sunday mornings after church, we would talk and you said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't really know. And you said, well, why don't you come by and have coffee? And we talked about FedEx, and I didn't end up going to logistics because the graveyard shift scared me a little bit. But you <laughs> did help me get into the airlines, and I've loved it since. It's been a wonderful career for me, and it's availed itself to my family for different privileges. So thank you.
1: Well, Vince, I'd like to say thank you for doing what you're doing for people to hear these stories of aircraft. And I already had today, I think I shared people that said, oh, I want to hear that. So Great. We'll spread the word for sure. Okay. uh, Well,
0: we will hopefully get this episode out pretty soon, but I do want to thank you again, and I look forward to seeing you around the island some more, Tom.
1: Thank you, sir. It was awesome.
0: All right. Once again, our big thanks to United States Navy Captain Tom
3: Mitchell, call sign Demon, retired. Sunshine, I thought that was a pretty great interview. Yeah, I was very impressed with Demon just then. And I honestly, he sounds so nice. I hate to call him Demon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I did too, and it doesn't fit the way I know the gentleman at all. And at the end of the discussion, in case... People's eyes started crossing when he was throwing out a lot of numbers, Sunshine. You probably yeah. understood. 37-105, 46-72. What he meant there were different squadrons. So VA-46 and VA-72 ended up having to quickly deploy and were later disestablished per your earlier discussion on a previous podcast episode. Mm-hmm. And VA, now VFA-37 and VFA-105 still exist, but just a lot of numbers there in that brief period of time. Anything else you caught in the discussion?
3: I was just impressed with the sheer numbers of his experience. That would be the 27 years, the 5,000-plus flight hours... And the over 1,000, I think it was 1,083 carrier arrested landings or traps.
0: That sounds right. Yeah. Well, he was a landing signal officer. I almost asked him how many he waved. Oh, yeah, But yeah, I'm yeah. sure that was many thousand more. But, yeah, that is pretty amazing. And, you know, again, for the young people out there thinking about maybe making a career in this, you certainly
3: get some amazing opportunities. Yeah, and then he also mentioned the 157 intercepts with Soviet aircraft. Jello, how many intercepts do you have? Zero. Okay, dude, I had one bear and one uh, Pakistani bear also, I guess. two. Yeah, two bears. One was Russian and one was Pakistani. That was it.
0: Huh. Well, you have one or two more than I do. But yeah, I guess it depends on where you deploy and what you do. But that's pretty impressive. That is very impressive. So just all around a great guy. For sure. Well, as always, all the new terms and acronyms will be found on our glossary tab of our website. So head on over and take a look for that. Well, Sunshine, I think this is as good a time as any then to remind the listeners that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. And I believe we'll be back here in another 10 days for another episode. Not sure what it'll be yet, but... Keep your eye on us, and we'll surely give you something interesting to come back for. What do you say, Sunshine? Sounds like a plan. Let's get out of here. Let's do it.
2: See ya! Thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101 be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, and to help support the show, visit our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and share us with your network. And if you have a moment to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it.
1: One other thing you know the a7 took its name from the original corsair
0: the f4u the corsair F4U also because Vought, right? that's
1: a Vought product yep. so they came up with a Vought name for sure. it. sure so
0: similar to i believe the f35 is the lightning 2 the it t6 is, is the mm-hmm. texan 2 right so right. we are yeah recycling aircraft recycling names. some names okay. you betcha fantastic